Father God, we just thank you for who you are, and we thank you uh, for the littles opening their home for us today. And uh, we're just thankful for families who love to come together and spend time with one another. Glorifying you, God, through fellowship, uh, we just we ask you that everything we do is sweet incense to you, that our prayers uh, uh, reach you, Lord, that they are answered in ways that um, that are hard for us to understand, Lord. We just specifically, Lord, would like to lift up the prayers of our husbands and our wives as we talk through Ephesians and what it looks like to be a godly wife, a godly husband, and a godly uh, child as we live as families trying to glorify you and raising our kids in you lord that you would pray for, uh, we pray specifically lord for all these things that our wives ask for and that our husbands ask for that they might become um, better stewards of your word for their children and that they may be better partners for their husbands and their wives we lift up lily and her mom we just ask lord for healing for her uh, we just ask that you touch her heart in ways that she's never seen before and soften her heart. Um, for new people at the church, we just ask that people feel free to come in, even though we are kind of a circle uh, of people, that there are not a lot of outsiders, that people would feel free to come in, that they would be welcomed, Lord. Um, for the Ewaldson, Ewaldson family, we just ask for peace during this time of grief um, as they grieve the loss of Adam, um, we would just ask that you would reach them and be able to comfort them in ways that we cannot. And also for the Moses family, for the same Lord, that you would just comfort them in their time of loss. And we ask for all of these prayers in the name of our Holy Savior, Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So we're going to do Ephesians 6. We're going to kick off the last chapter of Ephesians. It's been almost a year since we started Ephesians. It takes a while to get through all of these verses, to get through all of these things. It, if you look at them, and you see sometimes we break off big chunks. If you really study the Word of God, it can take a long time to get, to get through this book. The whole idea of like reading through the Bible in a year, I think it's a great idea, but I think what you do miss is there's a lot of stuff that you just read over that you're not really getting, if you will. So let's recap. Let's recap last week. Paul has gone... Um, from the generalization of the imperatives, we've talked about this, to getting very personal in the life of believers. We are talking about how husbands and wives relate to one another and how it glorifies God, right? And since chapter 4 started, uh, we've seen how to become unified in the body, how we are all one in Christ, and what it looks like uh, to be new in Christ as believers. And he's also explained to us how to walk in love um, <clears throat> and not being partnered up with people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we don't need to recap all of that, but you know there are people who you should not be partnering with in your walk with Christ. When you see them doing those things, do not go become a part of them. They will lead you astray. That's what Paul's saying. Don't do that. And then um, stay awake, Paul encourages us. Stay awake as we walk wise as believers. So we're called to be wise. Study, learn, pray, spend time with the, word, with the body of Christ, and help to stay awake. Then Paul starts to get really personal. And this is where we got just a couple of weeks here. We told wives to submit to their husbands. Like one of the most unpopular verses in the Bible, people contend with it all the time. As to the Lord, and then he commands husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church or laid himself down for her, right? And Paul's going to continue to push even deeper into the family because we're going to start talking about kids. And this one is going to be really 
kind of offensive, if you will, right off the get-go, right? Children, obey your parents. <clears throat> no kid likes to hear that. To have somebody look right at you, even as a child, and I know me as a young man, if I was in my teens and you looked at me and said, you need to obey your parents, yeah, I would probably give you some response that was not Christ-like in any sort of way because the idea of obedience is not something people outside the church understand in a right way. So let's read, let's go over um, <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll read verses 1 through 4. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So Paul is speaking pretty plainly here. You can't really twist this, obey, right? There's no riddles in the statement. The word he uses for obey really here is the same word he uses back in chapter five when he tells us to submit. It's obey and submit. They mean the same thing, right? When he says, wives, submit to your husband. So children should fall in line. We talked about that word submit or obey being like a military term, like when you fall in line. Just because my commander is the commander doesn't mean that I obey him in some sort of weird, ungodly way. I just recognize my position. doesn't mean he's smarter, faster, better, knows more than me, is better looking, whatever. I put myself in a position where I understand he's the commander, I have a mission to do, and I submit to the way that he runs things. It's a very similar way that we use that word uh, submit. <clears throat> so we fall in line, we fall in order. So kids, this is what you do. You fall in line, you fall in order for your parents. This is what you're called to do. You are called to obey what your parents say to do, even when it's unpopular. Why? Because they know best. Sometimes when you don't know best, they've got a, a bigger view, right? And what Paul says here is, it's the right thing to do is what he says. He says, obey them in the Lord because it's the right <clears throat> thing to do. This is what it says in Hosea 14.9. It says, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them, right? We do it because it's right in the Lord. This is what Hosea is saying here, right? The ways of the Lord are right. It is the correct thing to do. It honors God. And when you transgress, you stumble. So when you do not obey your parents, you actually stumble in what the Lord has for your life. And it's the same reason a woman submits to the husband and that a man lays down his life for his wife. It's because it's the right thing to do, as God would say, right? We're doing these things in obedience for the glory of God. We've talked about that a lot lately, right? And it's really the central part of the entire family unit is finding that when people all are obedient to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, and then the husband and wife also, everything works well, right? We all glorify God through obedience. When we work together as a family unit, the things fall in line with each other, right? And you might not realize this if you're a parent, but we mess this up sometimes. We don't always get it right. I know after um, three adult kids uh, in our home, I have messed up at least one thing over the last like 30 years, right? Um, we don't always handle things perfectly. 
Maybe sometimes we act out in anger when we shouldn't. Maybe sometimes we're too soft when we should have brought a little bit of righteous anger in. It's hard to know exactly how to do things. So we try to do them in a right way, but it's often very hard, right? Sometimes we just miss the mark uh, that we should have or could have handled much differently and oftentimes much more godly. And that's kind of the key here is like, did I just do it right or just did I do it in a godly manner? Sometimes that means taking a deep breath, praying, reading the word of God and leading them well. But either way, children are still called to submit, to be obedient in a way that honors God. And Paul, just as he's done here in the past, is going to reference the Old Testament as a foundation for his statement. And if you remember uh, from Exodus 20, 12, and we'll read this, you'll realize what this verse is as soon as I start reading it. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12 says this, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land, that the Lord your God is giving you. So honor your mother and father. Does it sound familiar? It's one of the Ten Commandments, right? So Paul adds here that this is the first commandment with a promise. And there's kind of some history behind that in Jewish history. We'll talk about that. But if you're meeting a modern translation like the NASB or the ESV, you'll notice it's in parentheses. And we talked about that a few months ago. Why things are parenthetical not, not the blocks, but the parentheses. And it's remember when you're studying these, it means it's for emphasis. He's saying, this is why. It's like he's, he's kind of picking up his voice and he's yelling it at you. This is why you're going to do this. So let's look at the Ten Commandments. Why? If you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four all fall into a specific category. So I'll breeze through real quick and see if you can pick it up. Number one, I'm your Lord, your God, have no gods before me. Two, do not make a graven or carved image or idols of anything in heaven and earth to worship. Number three, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. And number four, remember the Sabbath, the seventh day or the day of rest. God blessed it and it's a day of rest. What's unique about all four of the first ones? Who's the focus? God is the focus. So in the first four, God is the focus of all of them. Perfect. So God in one through four is the perfect. Now check this out. Look at the next six and listen. Honor your mother and father. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Do not cover your neighbor's house, wife, servants, ox, donkey, or anything else. I don't know if any of your neighbors have oxen or donkeys, but don't covet them. Who's the focus in these? So we are, right? So you. He's saying you don't do this. So he is saying this is the first one with a promise. So the fifth commandment is the first commandment of all the ten about our strict obedience in our interaction within the community of believers. These are the things that we should be actively doing or obeying, right? So if you keep reading in Exodus, you're going to see something here about after the Ten Commandments. He gets into how the people were afraid of the thunder and lightning. Like Moses comes down, he gets ready to deliver the Ten Commandments. And the people became afraid because there was like there's this thunder and this lightning and it's overwhelming and it, it must have been bad for the people who lived in that region to actually be afraid of whatever this storm was because they get those passing storms that dump rain and it would have been ridiculous it had to have been bad they didn't like that god was speaking only to moses like why why isn't god just speaking to us but moses reminded them that god was testing them to see that they would not sin following these commands is about receiving blessing you do this so that I can bless you, right? And to the contrary, not following these things means removal of God's blessing. 
That's why they're called commandments and they're not part of the law. These are the Ten Commandments. You do these things and specifically in the last six. So it was so serious for the Jews that part of the Levitical law was to be put to death for cursing your parents. So for those of you who have friends that still follow the Levitical law, in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 9, if your children do not obey you, they can be put to death for not listening to you. Imagine this. That sounds pretty harsh to me. I think it's a good thing that we have the new covenant. I don't, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but I mean, we can talk later about how bad your kids are. And whether they need some extreme punishment, I don't know. We can work, we'll work that out later. But Jesus actually uses this very law against the Pharisees in Matthew 15. I want to talk about that for a second because this is kind of important. Starting in verse 1, it says this. He writes, Matthew 15, starting in verse 1, it says, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they said, they said this to him, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? for they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So what he's doing is they're like, you're not following the law. He's like, you're not following the law. Yeah, but Jesus, you're not following the law. You're the law. No, you're not following the law. Remember I told you, if your kids disobey, you need to kill them? Why aren't you doing that? Do you supersede me? That's a pretty interesting conundrum for the Pharisees because they're like, mm, if you're like me, if my kids misbehave, I'm probably not going to slay one of them. So Jesus' question is, why not? Are you following the law? It's kind of interesting, and he places it on them not to see if they'll kill their kids. He's placing it on to show their sinfulness, to show them that they're trying really hard to reach God through following the law and they are trying to usurp it and then they're trying to second guess him. So why does it seem so serious? Well, God made the man the head of the woman, right? And the one who lays down his life <laughs> as Christ did for the church, he takes a role of leadership in his family. This is where it all comes down to. And this is how the family becomes unified with the wife as the partner. When the children dishonor the parents, they're going against God's plan is designed for the family and they actually dishonor God and his redemptive plan. It's supposed to be a picture of the redemptive plan. The reason that these guys weren't killing their kids is because they loved their children and that would have been the correct answer but all he did was entrap them in their own words as they tried to entrap him in his own actions, right? But I want to mention something about honor that can manifest itself differently in a multitude of family dynamics, all right? So sometimes honor is done by keeping distance. So it says, honor your mother and father. This works differently in every relationship. This is difficult for people, depending on what it looks like, your relationship between your parents and yourself, or even maybe you and your kids in the future. 
I don't know how many of you have parents who are not necessarily believers, but when you honor them, it might look different than if your parents are believers. If your parents deal with things like substance abuse or just psychological or mental issues, sometimes honoring them doesn't mean spending a whole bunch of time around them. Sometimes distance is a way to honor them to prevent contentiousness or argumentativeness. So I, we just need to be real about what does honor look like in our relationship. You need to pray about it, read the word of God about it, and we need to be seeking counsel with each other and people who have deal with other things. There's somebody in this room who has dealt with a parent who you don't see eye to eye with, and we can work that out together as believers. And it's important to understand that honoring your parents does not mean when you're a you know, 40 or 50 year old person that you are just at the will of your mom and dad like you were when you were six. It, it is a, there is a very big difference because when we live differently and we believe differently, it can create some big differences in the way we honor them. So I just want to be clear about that. Um, determining this becomes with that, with time and prayer and counsel, examining the word. So the third verse that we went over today, Paul shares something that's a little bit confusing and I want to make sure we drill down on it that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. What does it mean that you may live long in the land? So this would have been a very specific promise in the Old Testament to live long in the land, right? He promised the Jews to look forward to living in the promised land, entering the promised land. But for modern believers, it's a very general blessing for a better life, which is something we can talk about another time. But I don't believe that we are promised a better life. I think if you look at places like Matthew 24, what we are actually promised is tribulation. We are promised things will get hard. We are promised that people will hate us because we love Christ, because they hate Christ. This is the promise that we get. And I think the contemporary uh, prosperity gospel church that tells you if you give your money to the church and if you sing certain songs and the light show goes off that it's all going to be good. He's going to bless your bank account. He's going to bless your healing. He's going to give you healing. He's going to give you this. You just need to pray harder. You need to believe more. You need to give more. It's all hogwash. It's not what the gospel says. The gospel says it's going to be hard, period. However, here's the other part. When, as for modern believers, when we read this, live long in the land, doesn't mean perfection here, but we make the case that God will bless us with provision. It means we realize that what we have is from Him. It also helps us to realize that what we have in the next is from Him. Remember, for the Jews, the promised land was where? The land of Israel, of Judea. For us, where is the promised land? I, I hope we don't go back to Judea. I'm hoping we go to heaven. I mean, there will be a new Israel, but I'm hoping I don't wake up and then I'm in Israel. Like that wasn't, that's not what's on my list. So I'm, uh, I'm looking for the promised land to be present with the father, right? As we move on to the fourth verse, we get back to the husband. And this is what's important about this whole entire section. He, Paul is really going to drill down on dads here in a second, because this is really where it comes from. You want to be the head of the house? Okay. I'm going to have your wife submit to you. Then I'm going to make it your responsibility to lay down your life for her. Oh, by the way, all the kids, they're your responsibility as well. So here it comes. The verse says for fathers not to provoke their children in anger, but to bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. It doesn't say moms bring your children up in discipline and instruction. It says fathers bring your children up. Very specific, not parents, fathers. We can make a reasonable assumption that provoking children to anger, because the way this is written here, 
is the opposite of bringing them up in the Lord. Don't provoke them, but bring them up in the Lord. So if you are not bringing them up in the Lord, then you are provoking them to anger. So the question comes up, well, what does that mean to provoke them in anger? We can come up with a million ideas of what provocation looks like, but I think if you just wanted to categorically shove it all into one box, you would say, if I'm not bringing my kids up to love God, to serve God, to know the word of God, then everything else provokes them to anger against God. Seems pretty simple. And we can give examples, but seems pretty simple, right? This brings up some things about training our kids and maintaining an orderly house that we should probably, we'll talk about before we close. We should strive to train our kids to love God. Not just in prayerfulness. Prayerfulness is easy. Praying over food, praying before bed. But in literal, tangible ways, how do we serve God? As fathers, we're responsible for training them in faith so they don't lose their way in the world. And we're going to talk about some numbers here in a second because this is pretty tough. Proverbs 22.6, which Proverbs is full of stuff for moms and dads and husbands and wives. It says, train up a child in the way he will go. And even when he's old, he won't depart from it. That's very encouraging. Bring your kids up in the Lord. Why do kids walk away from God in households that are otherwise seemingly Christian? We're going to get to that in a minute. Because I think you'll find, for the most part, not all the time, but for the most part, they are not being trained well. We'll talk about some of those numbers. Many reports of students getting to college and leaving the Christian faith. There's many of them. There's tons of them. If you get on the interwebs, all kinds of stuff. All kinds of magazines have done reports. And this refers to kids who attend church regularly, so they grow up sitting in church on Sunday. What the reports say is that anywhere from 66 to 90% of kids leave church when they get to college. So they grew up in church, they get to college, and then they just stop. 66 to 90%. I know that's a pretty broad number, but I think 66 is high enough. If you grew up in the instruction and the training of the Lord, as a child, there should be like a 1% chance you walk away. And it should have been something pretty darn tragic. It shouldn't be because, well, you know, I, I took a gender studies class and now I don't believe in anything anymore and now I'm a nihilist. But that's what's happening. They get around people who are anti-God and then they just dismiss him, right? I'm going to get to this. Uh, there's a report from crosswalk.com um, and it said there's three kinds of kids who leave the faith. The drifter, the person who starts to lose, they drift away from God. Like you, you've heard this, people in your life, you're like, ah, I used to go to church. I just kind of, you know, I stopped and then I drifted away and now we just don't go and I'm okay with it. They've got the relativist, right? Faith loses power over time as it compares to your life experiences. Now it's all relative to you. So I am okay where I am. If I was in church, I'd be okay where I am there. It's all relative. And then you've got the unconvinced. And that one kind of speaks for itself. Like, I'm just not convinced God is real. I'm not convinced Jesus rose from the grave. I'm not convinced Jesus was God. I'm not convinced your faith actually helps you. That's unconvinced. And the report gives the answer as ownership, that there's no growth without challenge. The article tries to make it like a clinical answer. This is the reason. These are the types of people who leave the church. But I think I've got a different answer. As I read this, it just dawned on me. First, don't stick your kids in a youth group expecting you're some kid in skinny jeans who wears a Jesus t-shirt whose idea of training is blasting Hillsong music, playing foosball as training. That's not a thing. 
If you stick your kids in a youth group at a big church and you expect some kid who'd never received any good training to raise your kids to be good Christians, you are not training them in the Lord. You're sticking them in youth groups so you can go sit and do five rock and roll songs with a light show while your kids get trash. It's just not true. I'm telling you, this is the youth groups. I think some Sunday, don't miss it with us, go stand in the back of a youth group. It would blow your mind the stuff that they do. 10 minutes of study about Jesus and 50 minutes of playing foosball, throwing Nerf balls, and listening to music that they shouldn't be listening to either. And the problem as fathers is, is we're naive. See, I was naive. And I allowed my kids to go into this environment. And then I realized when they were having issues with things and they'd ask questions, they weren't getting what they needed. But I didn't know because it looks like in the contemporary church, when you walk into church with your kids hand in hand, the kids go one way and the adults go another. Now I realize there's, an, and we have a lot of little kids here who probably should be in a, a care facility. We may get there, I don't know. Where they're able to be cared for in a different way and read baby Bible stories. But there's also a point where your kids are old enough. Look at these kids. They're old enough. They can sit and they can listen. Your kids are old enough to sit and listen. And they get it. They get the word of God. It's all we do for over a year. It's all we've done is just read out of the word of God. And they hear things and they get them and they're trained in them every Sunday. And then you go home and you talk about this every Sunday. Throughout the week, you talk about it and you pray about it. We pray for each other. And when we share our prayers for each other for the week of our needs, you bring those to your family in front of your kids and they hear it over and over. And they are trained to be a part of the body of Christ. They're trained to understand what it looks like to walk as a Christian. And I'm telling you, if you walk in and there's a dude with a top knot and skinny jeans on telling your kid for three minutes how great a Hillsong song is, you need to walk out of it. It is a waste of your time. Here's the deal. If you don't train them up in it and they end up in hell because you didn't do the right thing, it's your fault. Yeah, they're accountable. I get it. But dads, we can't let this happen. All of us from a military environment would never in a million years usurp some kind of good training for some kind of trash training because it was easier or you assumed it was okay. But you'll do it with your kids on Sunday. Extremely important. It's about their salvation. This is the second answer I have. The article leaves out fathers. Out of all three of those categories, it leaves out fathers. It's our responsibility. I did it. I'm telling you, I put my kids in those groups. Don't do it. It's your job to read to them. You've got to read. I got to this point for a while. I was so busy at work. I would wake them up at 4.30 in the morning every day during the week. I think Carol didn't like this either. I'd be like, time to get up. We're sitting in the living room. We're going to do a Bible study. We did it together. I had to go. I had to go. I wasn't going to be home on time. And we did it. Why? Because we had to. It's the most important thing. Breakfast is not the most important meal of the day. Jesus is. It's your job to turn the world away and rebuke it. It's your job to reassure them that the Savior loves them. It's not all just about rebuke of the trash that's out there. It's also about feeding into them that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He's got more for you. He wants more for you. You got to love him back. One of the things I probably think we did right is our kids would go to bed and I assured them every night. We would sing our little kids songs, our little Christian songs, and we would say, 
Why do we love Jesus? Because he loves us first. He came to you first. Think about that in just your life. It's so much easier to love people who love you. Jesus never stops loving us. He loved us first. And for our kids to know that when they lay their heads down at night makes it easier to know that when the day is tough. Like, I don't know if Jesus loves me. I'm having a hard day. But I continue to be reassured by my dad and my mom that he loved me first, right? He died for them. He's going to bring them home. It's your job to defend the faith. It's your job to defend their faith until they are old enough to do it themselves. And then, like for us, as we go through the transition period of kids into the world, we still have these conversations regularly about how to defend your faith in light of what's going on in the world around you. And they're not ready to handle it in college. I know when I was a 20-something, I wasn't ready to handle it. I mean, I was far away from the Lord then anyway, which means they're definitely not ready in high school. And I know they're not ready in middle school or younger. It's up to you to stand up for them. Here's another way to stand up for your kids so that they see Jesus. Love their mom. Sacrificially. I'm not going to say anything more about that. This is what fatherlessness looks like in the United States. This is from fixfamilycourts.com. So this is a secular organization that goes over some numbers of what it looks like to grow up in a household where there's a single parent. Overwhelmingly, those single parents are moms just because of the dynamic of the court system in the United States. And let's be honest, probably overwhelmingly, it's deadbeat dads. So this is what fatherlessness looks like in the home. 63% of all youth suicides, single parent home, mother only. 70% of all teen pregnancies, single parent home. 71% of all adolescent chemical and substance abusers. 80% of all prison inmates. 90% of all homeless and runaway children came from single mother homes. If you know anything about runaways out there right now, if you're following human trafficking, how bad that is, one of their prime picking grounds is runaways which means single parent homes is one of the best ways to feed into the sex industry and human trafficking industry. Unreal. Children brought up in a single mother home are five times more likely to commit suicide, nine times more likely to drop out of high school, 10 times more likely to abuse chemical substances, 14 times more likely to commit rape, 20 times more likely to end up in prison, and 32 times more likely to run away from home. That blew my mind. We're failing as fathers here in the world, but in the United States, for sure, we're failing. Don't let your kids be a statistic. Train them in the Lord. Train them in the Lord. Listen to what Solomon said in Proverbs 4.1. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. So he's talking to the son, but he's making the assumption that the father's teaching him. Hear, O sons, your father's instructions, and be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give, I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in my sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words, keep my commandments, and live. Proverbs 3.1, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Proverbs 1.8, hear my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Which means, guess what? 
Mom's also involved in teaching the kids and bring them up in the Lord. Although he's picking on the fathers, we've talked about this, the structure of the home is headship. So moms falling underneath good headship means children are getting instructed by their wives, their moms as well. When he says to bring them up, he says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the, of the Lord. There's this word that he uses that I found was really interesting, right? Ektrafo means to nourish. Paul uses this to bring them up. It actually doesn't mean bring them up. It actually means nourish, which is interesting, right? I'm sure the translation bring them up is correct, but it's the same verb that's used in chapter five and verse 29 when he talks about nourishing your own body. We talk about loving our wives. Like you wouldn't hate your own body. You would nourish it. You nourish your own body. Discusses a husband loving his wives. So we nourish our children. We feed them what they need. Wives, you're accountable for this instruction to your kids as well, right? As your husbands and you partner with them in marriage. Titus 2 is a great place to go for this. Titus 2 calls women to instruct women in the church and children. So women are part of the instruction process. Like we said, headship, women, instruction. Women should be instructing their children. Absolutely imperative. Proverbs 31 says this about a godly wife. She opens her mouth with wisdom. And the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. I think that is beautiful because oftentimes as dads, we bring all the like edgy stuff and we try to be nourishers and we try to be nice and loving, but we also bring that thing that sometimes a mom doesn't bring. We're here in Proverbs. It says when she opens her mouth, she brings wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. That's the loving kindness that only really a mom can bring to a child because they were nourished differently. It's just a beautiful way to look at it, right? So Paul mentions a lot of notable women who do a lot of great works for the cause of the gospel in the New Testament. And just to go back to women for a second, this is important. Interestingly, he takes the time when commending Timothy, if you were to read the book of Timothy, he commends Timothy for his sincere faith. He's like, I love you for how faithful you are. And he says this to him. He says that that sincere faith, that his deep-faced faith first dwelt in his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. What a legacy to leave as far as a mother is concerned. He doesn't go to Timothy and say, your father gave you this. He says, I commend you for your faith that first laid in your grandmother and your mother. And remember, Timothy was the youngest of all that Paul ever taught. He was probably a very young man. So here's this young guy right out of the home. He's been reared. He's gone. He's an evangelist. And Paul looks at him and goes, your mother and your grandmother, they did a good job with you. I mean, Timothy's a great evangelist. So we're reading out of the book of Ephesus. Where was Timothy's church? It was in Ephesus. So amazing, full circle that we get this with this. You see, there is a theme in all of this, right? We tell kids to be obedient. Um, but that obedience is about teaching. They are obedient to us because we make them learn, because we love them, right? To instruction, to training, to reassurance. But also we teach them love. We teach them what family looks like by being good parents. <clears throat> how we see 
how your children see you loving your wife is extremely important. Dealing with people in the community and how they see you dealing with people. It also is about the way they see you spending your time and the way they see you spending your money. Kids watch you and they walk out your faith by the way they watch you. They walk the way you walk. They will spend the way you spend. They will live the way you live. If you live recklessly, rest assured they will live recklessly. Maybe not in your way, but recklessly nonetheless. If you live lovingly, if they see you pouring your money into things that help people, they will do the same. If they see you spending your time after church with hours and hours of football drinking light beer, they will not see the Lord's day as a day set aside for him. I'm not saying don't rest. There's, there's a difference. What I'm saying is what your kids see in you and the way you spend your day says a lot about how they will spend their lives. So we need to train them up in that way. So children, obey your parents and fathers. Do not provoke them to anger, but train them up in the Lord. So pray with me as we finish. Father, we thank you for who you are. And we thank you for a room full of mothers and fathers who dearly love their children, who will bring them together weekly to hear your word, who love one another and spend time with one another, who share with one another, who share their, their homes and their food and their time and their resources with one another, Lord. And we would just ask that because we do this, that our children would see it and that they would emulate it in their walk with you, Lord, that they would see that we love each other because we love you. And we love you because you loved us first. And we ask for all of our sweet blessings in his holy name. Amen.